Our God, we, we do continue to pray for us to, have, to be a saver of the gospel to our neighbors and co-workers and in our communities. Lord, help us in consistently living the gospel before people who so desperately need hope, who so desperately need to come to the foot of the cross to recognize the, the burden of their sin and the judgment of God to come upon their life, that if they would simply flee to you through repentant faith, you will in no wise cast out. You invite sinners to come for salvation at the foot of your throne. We ask that as we continue to open up the glory of the gospel, as we study the Word of God, might our focus be riveted on our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and what you are doing in your building process and constructing the church, the body of Christ, for the praise and glory of your great name. Might your spirit bear witness with your word this morning. Help us to understand. Might we know the full weight of both conviction and encouragement towards righteousness and how to be doers of your word. Meet with your people. For the praise of your great name we ask. Amen. His research made him famous. Max Sherman, a scientist who studies energy efficiency in buildings, had examined the effectiveness of various sealants for heating and air conditioning ducts. He came up with a startling conclusion, first reported on the web and then rapidly picked up by the Wall Street Journal, the Associated Press, and a host of other broadcast media. Sherman's news was that, the, that most of the duct sealants on the market work with one notable exception, duct tape. In just a few days after its application, reported Sherman, duct tape, quote, failed reliably and often catastrophically, unquote. News show interviews with Sherman contained exchanges such as this. Interviewer, how did duct tape get its name? Sherman, I don't know. Interviewer, what can you use it for? Sherman, anything but ducks. Interviewer, do you use duct tape? Sherman, all the time, just not on ducts. What made Sherman's duct tape discovery newsworthy, of course, was that the product that our society jokingly refers to as the force that holds the universe together, while it's got every good use around the home to hold anything together, just go get your duct tape, it's not good for the one purpose that it was designed for. The irony might reflect the fear more than a few of us share when considering our role in leading the church. As we looked, have been looking at biblical leadership in Titus chapter 1, careful preparation, years of study might have led to a consideration of leaders. No one can deny there's potentially many good purposes for what we 
learn. We, when some of us go off to Bible college or seminary or, or when we gather in men's Bible study and seek to see God raise up elders and godly male leadership in the home and in the church. But we fear we are unable to fulfill the very leadership func- functions for which we have trained. Religious training does not guarantee effective and meaningful leadership. In fact, we learn from Paul's letter to Titus that those on Crete who claimed to be the most religious were yet the least qualified to lead God's church. How do we keep from failing reliably and catastrophically, to use the words of Max Sherman, in the very leadership roles for which we have long prepared. Paul's answers are provided in this letter to Titus in verses 10 through 16 of Titus 1. It's a study in contrast. Our bulletin front last week had an article by Tim Challies on the anti-elder. And so as Paul comes to Titus and in chapter 1 verse, one, verse 5 mandates that he go throughout the island of Crete to every village and every town and establish a plurality of shepherd elders in those churches that every church is to conform or to be felled in disobedience on high, high treason against the head of the church. And those leaders was not left to Titus' own imagination and creative ingenuity, but God unfolded exactly who is qualified to lead His sheep in the local church. Verses 6 through 9 that we looked at last week, those qualifications. And in stark contrast to biblically qualified leaders, stand all the leaders in the churches in Crete. Examples of errant leaders in those churches so that you and I can, can navigate through a path leading those that would lead us away from the gospel. And Paul, in essence, says, don't go there. Don't follow after these men. Religious training, going to the most prestigious seminaries does not guarantee meaningful biblical or God-honoring or God-blessed leadership. We'd mentioned last week our our grave concern in the church of Jesus Christ of unqualified leadership in churches. This study today is meant to contrast Christian leaders with that. The presence of false teachers is abundant and present in various forms and in all places. Paul says to Titus that... Elders' function are to refute opponents, refute contradictors. That's one of the primary functions of eldership, and yet many churches who just change the name to elders without changing the function, that's the, one of the main functions, and yet that's what so many who would be dubbed elders don't want any part of. How do we keep from failing reliably and catastrophically far worse than Sherman's tape? Far worse because these would be errant leaders in churches in Crete and churches in our day and age. Paul graciously shows the path that leads not according to the mandate of Scripture. So I'd invite you to learn with me from the negative examples, who to beware of, who not to follow, 
the kind of anti-elders, the apostles' lesson on wrong words, wrong motives, and wrong actions. Everything about their ministry, in other words, is wrong. Learn to be concerned about anti-elders' words, about their motives, and about their actions. Three simple points. Concern for the church. Discernment in shepherding is developed as we understand the biblical concern. First of all, we start off in verses 10-11 with a concern about wrong words, but before we start opening up the text, let's read the text. Titus 1, verse 10. For, in contrast to what he's been talking about for several verses, we've studied for a couple of weeks, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Notice with me, first of all, Paul's concern about wrong words. And we're going to ask and answer two questions with each of the three points and give the answers to those questions as we seek to open and analyze the text. When we say that, we, that Paul was concerned about their wrong words, concerned about what? First of all, damaged doctrines. That is what he was concerned about, damaged doctrines. Now, in the previous verse, Paul had underscored the primary importance in an elder's task to hold fast to the faithful words. Remember that, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in according with the teaching, so that it's with a purpose. Why do we hold to the word? So that we're able to exhort with sound doctrine and refute those who contradict that sound doctrine. It's got a, a two-edged, a two-fold focus here. So he underscored that purpose. And when he starts off in verse 10 with this little word for, he now spells out in detail in verses 10 through 16. In other words, case in point, look at the anti-elders. Look at the many rebellious men. Rebellious already used back in verse number 6 of what cannot characterize elders' children, speaking of those who throw off authority, those who demand autonomy. These, professed, these men professed Christ, but they contradicted sound doctrine, sound words, worthless offering up empty and useless words, idly talking about senseless things, Though they may have sophisticated rhetoric, 
The content is useless. They might have impressive language with little to no solid content of the truth. You listen to some of the preaching that goes on today, if they'd call it, some of them call call it that, and somebody asks you, so what's wrong with that? And well, you just know something's off, because it sounds real preachy. There's some truth to it. They even engage in deceit, Paul says. That verb occurs in uh, Galatians 6. It describes one who deceives the mind or thinking of another. If it didn't sound like truth, you wouldn't listen to them. And so there's, there's somewhat of, of truth mixed with the error so that uh, uh, people will be gullible enough so that they can be deceived. The old Greek scholar A.T. Robertson suggests that uh, these words, these empty and useless words that they used to deceive, suggested a pharisaical, uh, it was a pharisaical type tinged with Gnosticism. He identifies former Jews who joined the early church with a gospel plus message. This can come from many different angles, many different kinds of teachings in a gospel plus message. These teachers who professed Christ, who professed to know God, who were religious, would say that a person is saved by faith like many religious people in our day and age. But there would be a plus. Plus special religious knowledge. Plus diets. Plus rites. Plus practice that qualifies you for heaven. It is Repentant faith placed in Jesus plus nothing that merits us a standing in heaven. Christ's righteousness, nothing added. To have a gospel plus message adds to the work of Christ. It is the product, the reaction of humans that leads not to the security that Christ gives when He clothes one in His own righteousness, But when you have a gospel plus message, it leads to uh, spiritual pride. Uh, I'm better than so and so because I uh, maybe it comes. I uh, I don't uh, how does the saying go? I I don't uh, drink and chew or go with girls that do. And, and that, that no, because we define ourselves by what we stay away from and, and what, what we do, whether it be because of my legalism or my music or my translation of the Bible or any, any other behavior modification that thinks that that merits standing with God. A true understanding of our depravity and our unworthiness And our understanding of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, God looking not on our perfections, our own works, but on Christ. Any of our doings leads not to confidence. It leads to questioning when we fail to measure up, which we so often do. Any confidence in our works leads to arrogance and hardness and envy, not sufficiency not being able to be stable, knowing that we stand in Christ and Christ's righteousness alone. Many who come into the church are dealers of myths, and they season these with commandments of men. You'll notice that later on down in verse number 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. They are not pointing you to the cross. 
They are not pointing you to the sufficiency of Christ and Christ alone. They come in many forms, can be found in many errors, many arenas, introducing man-made burdens and duties that are not given by precept or example in Scripture. Scriptures do not prescribe nor command what the, the burdens that these men bring into the church. Here in Crete, you'll notice that Paul says there were a lot of them. Many rebellious men, many empty talkers, many deceivers. So there's a host of error, little truth. A host of people saying that we've got the message of the gospel. Yes, it's a message of the gospel plus, And few that give you the raw deal, just the raw gospel, gospel and nothing else. So there were many which necessitated prepared elders, prepared overseers with discernment being the urgent matter of the hour. And not only to alert us to what, but who we should focus on. So thus comes our, our, next quest, our second question under the first point. We ought to be concerned about whom? Damaged households. You'll notice as we continue in verse number 11 that they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. We ought to be concerned for people that are being led astray by error. The unsound teaching of the circumcision group was ruining and overturning entire families. Doesn't your heart ache for those that are, are, have been trained in legalism and traditions of men in a gospel plus message? Your heart grieves for them because they think that's the soul and substance, majoring on minors. This was not just a philosophical divergence or contrasting speculations of no consequences. Since it was upsetting whole households, that word upsetting means turn over. You know where else this is used? It's used in John 2.15 of when Jesus upset the temples of the money changers in the temple. It was no minor deal when Jesus said that my father's house shall be called a house of prayer and you've made a den of thieves and he overturned the tables. A gospel plus message can be allowed no room, no wiggle room in the church of Jesus Christ because it damages households, upsetting them. The only other usage is in 2 Timothy 2.15 of the effect that false teachers have upon the faith of others. Yes, we hold out for God's kindness that God might be gracious to deliver false teachers from their damning error, but we cannot give them a hearing. We cannot give them influence. There is a time to listen to those that disagree, and according to the text here in Titus chapter 1, there is a time to silence. Silence them. They must be silenced. Verse 11 this is the only usage in the New Testament. It's a compound word, epi, meaning over, stoma, mouth. Over the mouth, hand held to the mouth. In other words, put a sock in it. 
or any other vernacular you want to use to get the point across. They must be bridled. They must be muzzled. It doesn't matter what their agenda is. They must be silenced. This flows out of Paul's pastoral heart to silence doctrinal opponents out of zeal for God's people. This is a biblical portrait of an elder. As he stands against an anti-elder to silence the error. It's not just enough to ignore some words and expressions or teachings. They must be stopped. What are you relying on today as you sit in the pews before me? Has there come a point in your life where you have turned from your sin and embraced Christ and the grounds in which you stand today? Say, you know, this, you've been posed the scenario in evangelism if you were to die today, which could happen today, and you were to stand before God and you were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? And your only response is because I'm clothed in the righteousness of your Son. Do you have that confidence? Is your own teaching by word and behavior communicating a gospel plus doctrine that's doing damage? Might I pastorally exhort you, stop trying to be good enough. Come to God through Christ in faith who will make you righteous in His own name and not your name. This is the power of God as a gift to be received by faith. I urge you to meditate on the fact that what converts you to Christ by grace through faith is what conform you, conforms you to Christ. The same gospel plus nothing that saves you is the same power of God, not only to salvation, but to sanctification. That is the gospel in which we stand, that we're offered gospel hope and gospel peace and gospel words of forgiveness and gospel fruit of His Spirit that works in us. Gospel plus nothing. Paul was concerned about wrong words, but he was also concerned about wrong motives. Verses 12, uh, the, the latter part of verse 11 through verse 15. First question about what shall we be concerned? I would suggest to you of, of uh, what we should be concerned is ministries that are focused on gain. Notice what the apostle tells us here. He says, they are teaching things that they should not teach. Here is why. For the sake of sordid gain. Notice that at the end of verse 11. It's why they're in it. Your scripture goes where we can't go. We're not trying to get involved in questioning of motives and all of that game, but uh, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul informs us of the hidden agenda and the hidden motives of these false teachers, he gets to the heart of the matter. Dishonest gain. Their true motive is to gain a profit rather than to serve the hearers. This speaks to their mercenary intent as they teach things they ought not. It describes whatever might be to their profit, their advantage, or their gain. Though it might be for monetary gain, they're in it for the paycheck, it doesn't have to be limited to that. Maybe it's just social leverage. They get the power to be the one in the pulpit to preach. 
Maybe it's the power and the clout. They're prophets for, prophets for profit. Whatever the gain, the apostle diagnoses this as sordid or dishonest gain. Shameful. It's ugly. Ministers going where they ought not. And they, 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 they go where they do because they, uh, not because there's a need for ministry, but because there's reward. About what should we be concerned? We ought to be concerned about ministries focused on dishonest or sordid gain. And I'd suggest a second-fold answer to that question, that they were ministers focused on garbage, which is the verses 12 through 15. Notice again, as we already read, he, he quotes a prophet of their age, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely that they might be sound in faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths. Not focused on incidental matters and emptiness and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Because if you're pure, all things are pure. But for those who are defiled like these for sordid gain, they're unbelieving. Nothing's pure. Their mind, their conscience, they're defiled. So, focusing on matters that Paul considered rubbish, and he gets more specific on the circumcision group. Who are these? What is this gospel plus message that infiltrated the churches? Notice in the text, verse 10, there was a circumcision group. Verse 13, who are to be rebuked firmly, sharply. Verse 14, so that they'll pay... No attention to Jewish myths or commandments of those who reject the truth. Or verse 15, practices that suppose they suppose makes them more pure or impure. Their message was one of Jewish fables. Paul talks in some of the other pastorals in 1 and 2 Timothy about myths and endless genealogies, 1 Timothy 1.4 and 2 Timothy 4.4. Peter addresses it too in his second epistle. Peter talks about how false teachers devise cunningly, uh, have cunningly devised tales. Remember our study there in, in 2 Peter 1.16, that of certain traditional rituals or commandments of men Oral traditions condemned by Christ that we, if we had time, would spend time looking at in Mark chapter 7. Those that come and say that, yes, it's by grace through faith, but you also got to do this, that, and the other thing for Christian purity. We can put no confidence in any human practice as the basis for our standing with God. One expositor put it this way, neither knowing nor observing the implications of certain myths or commands or cleanliness codes ensures high Christian spirituality or status. What gives you your confidence, beloved? Is it your bootstrap theology? I pull myself up by my own bootstraps and and work it out? Paul points out this doesn't come from God who doesn't lie. 
a gospel plus message cunningly devised fables, traditions of men, Jewish myths, all these things come from human culture. And so he quotes from their culture. People would probably want to castigate Paul as you, you've misquoted us, you've misquoted our day, you don't understand our message. So I'll quote your message. Here's one of your own philosophers. You know, they're focused on, uh, you know, he, 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 he's, when he says Cretans are always liars, this is a quote from the 6th century from the writer, philosopher, and wannabe prophet Epimenides. And to support his rather strong statement of those whom Titus was, to, was working, and when he says silence them, Less people think that he's being, well, Paul, you're just not loving. You're a little too harsh. Paul quotes one of their own. So that you won't think that he's uh, stereotyping or profiling in an inappropriate way. Because to reject what his message is when he quotes their own is, would be to re- reject their own. Their own Cretan. Focusing on human observations and human endeavor. I'm kind of reminiscent of another passage when Paul is trying to get them focused on the real deal and what counts for eternity. You remember what he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 through 8? If somebody could focus on incidentals and externals and having their act together... You the man, Paul. You the man. If any could have confidence in the flesh, he says there in Philippians 3, 4, it's me. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all these things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but, what? Rubbish, scubalon, dung, refuse. Garbage. Paul was concerned about wrong motives that were focused on ministries focused on gain and ministries focused on garbage. And to kind of tie in where he's been, where he's going with this thought, going back to the text in Titus one, drop down to verse fifteen, where he says to the pure. In other words, those that are standing in the pure and undefiled righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, to them, everything's pure. Everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. They're going to be denying this and denying that to gain adherence with God. To the pure, all things are pure. This is counterintuitive. This is not the way natural man thinks. 
You think that if somebody's pure, or any, if, he's, if he touches anything impure, he automatically what? Becomes impure. It's like when I went down to uh, get the, 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 the sink in the kitchen was holding water, so I went down to give it the old beat so that the, plump, uh, the pump would start running again. You, you put your hand in dirty soap water, you get dirty. That's the opposite of what Paul's saying here. To the pure, everything's pure. Paul contends for those who have motives that are pure in Christ, virtually nothing makes them impure. Jesus makes that pure in that text, uh, that uh, clear in the text in Mark 7, verses 15 through 23. Nothing outside can make him unclean by going into him. Look at the inner man. Is the inner man defiled or is it pure? Is there a new work of Christ involved there at the heart level or not? And this does not say that conduct doesn't matter. But the concern is that we know neither physical nor material nor edible in themselves make us clean or sanctified or not. God's mercy alone makes us right with Him. And grasping a hold of this gets us out of the performance mentality and makes us more merciful to others. If you're judging your spiritual growth by externals, you're, you're by nature going to be a harsh person to do ministry with because your level in your estimation is going to be up here compared to the others. But when we realize that the playing field is equal at the foot of the cross, God's mercy alone makes us right with Him, it's going to relieve us from being hypercritical and judgmental. To judge our merit on others' demerit is no longer a part of our religiosity. Think about how much emphasis is made by many who in their own estimation are the spiritually elevated. And they base it on various things. Uh, uh, I hesitate to even mention any lest you think this is an exhaustive list, but a sampling basing their spiritual elevation on uh, the vitamin supplementation or uniforms in, the, in school or the kind of schooling, whether it's Christian school or home school or public school or political party affiliation or non-mutual fund investing, because you all know it's of the devil anyways, or syncopated music or the use of alcohol or music attendance or anything, anything else. What should we be concerned about? We ought to be concerned about focusing on ministries based on gain or garbage. For whom should we be concerned? Those who have lost their focus. Verse 13. He quotes, Cretans are always liars in the previous verse, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, he says. For this reason, reprove them so that they may be sound in the faith. Be concerned for their soul. Regardless of what translation you use, verse 13 sounds very harsh. That's why Paul quotes a man of his day. Reprove them severely because they've lost their focus. This is part, as we've said, a function of uh, elders back in verse number 9. 
He only used this term reproving severely in communicating to the ministries at Ephesus and Crete. If I were to rely again on the the old Greek meister, Dr. Robertson, who he said this comes from an old verb form meaning to cut off. An adverb comes to have the sense of curtly or abruptly. In the New Testament, it's only used here and in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. So to quote him, to quote Robertson, he says, It's necessary to appear rude sometimes for safety if the house is on fire and life is in danger. You man up and you confront error. What are people going to say, whether you be a bigot or unloving? I don't care if I scream at my kids to get out of the house because it's burning down, I can ask for their forgiveness later for offending them with the intensity of the words in which I used. If the house is burning down, it calls for strong language. Get out! If there is damning dangers of people thinking that they can merit their favor to God, they must be stopped. Reprove severely. In order to protect the truth, the deposit entrusted to us and help the church exercise discernment between truth and error, it's important at time for polemics. It's important at time to drop names and the errant systems along with those names. Notice that Paul is not being elitist. He's not being antagonistic. He's not even saying so there. Notice his pastoral heart as it it oozes from the pages of Scripture. Here is why you stop them short in their tracks and reprove them severely, that they might be sound in the faith. Maybe God will grant repentance to them in His kindness. You're not out to just give it to the false teachers. Not at all. Though there is harshness in confronting error, there's a graciousness that reaches out to those who oppose Him. Even enemies of the gospel are to be reached with the gospel. There's a redemptive purpose, in other words. Verse 13 points our focus on being restorative, not vindictive. Notice that. Lest you be rightfully called harsh in your judgment. Though false teachers have been in view in this text, I think that the scope gets a little bit wider here and reaches out to the whole church so that the, so that the whole church might be sound in faith, so that they all might be rescued, false teacher and true believer alike. Brian Chapel put it this way, still to love the gospel, to fight for it, and at the same time to desire that its truths capture the hearts of our enemies is what God requires of those who would differ from the world. The world understands hating those who oppose you, but do you desire even your enemies, your opponents, to come to the knowledge of the truth? Good question for us, beloved. Take care with your words and how you phrase your interchange and interaction with them. How do you posture yourself in social media when you're making a stand for the gospel? Is it with gospel grace? Are you guilty of different attitudes, perspectives, or emphases causing an unfair and unkind characterizations or separations with those that oppose you? 
Make the gospel real with gospel truth, gospel responses, gospel words, gospel attitudes. That's the issue. Paul brings concern to the church of his day and the concern to the church of our day about wrong words and wrong motives. But notice he clinches it in verse 16. He was concerned about these wrong actions. He says they, they claim to know God, but their deeds deny Him. Instead, they are detestable, disobedient, and worthless. What are we concerned about? Deeds that deny God. Deeds that deny God. His opponents profess to know God. There's a public claim of personal intimacy. They are religious, habitually telling that they know God, but they are lost. C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Because they think they're not bad men. Paul doesn't use the term gnosko, which is an experiential knowledge, which emphasizes personal, relational knowledge. He uses the word in the Greek language, oida. They just got information. They might be able to beat you in a theological argument. They, they can quote you chapter and verse, but they don't know God intimately through saving faith. Their claim is not reality, and here is why. Because what they say with their lips is denied with their life. They deny. The same word used of when Peter renunciated Christ. If our deeds don't conform to the gracious character of God, we deny His nature and our opportunity to serve. Actions tell a truer picture of people than their words do. Notice he talks about their deeds. This is the first verse where he introduces a major theme through the entire book of Titus. It becomes a, a strong theme from here on out. He calls on professed believers to show the reality of that faith, that it is saving faith. By the way, beloved, how, how consistent are you manifesting the character of God to your those that God has put around you for unbelievers, whether it be an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving neighbors or unbelieving co-workers? Do they rightfully call you the Bible thumper because of how you bring them the gospel? What are we concerned about? We're concerned about deeds that deny God. Whom are we concerned about? We're concerned about God. We're concerned about God. God calls them to action. He calls them to the carpet on their profession. And He says that they are detestable. Same word used here of God's attitude towards idolatry. It's an expression of disgust at their hypocrisy. This word group is used in the Septuagint in connection with the abomination of idolatry. Those that would worship anything but God Himself. Religion or the religious trappings, but not Him. He says they are detestable and they are disobedient impersuadable, uncompliant. Their actions render them unfit to accomplish anything good for God. So dear Christian, if you are to be a true minister of the gospel, your lives as well as your words must demonstrate supreme loyalty to God and His purpose. 
A lot of truths that we could take home from this passage of Scripture with us. Consider maybe the the manifold ways that legalism binds a person to an ever-increasing response of failure and hopelessness, never able to measure up that vicious cycle. Take with you an application of how our actions either confirm or deny our profession of faith in Christ. Consider it. What about the countless people that this verse addresses whose confession of faith never demonstrates any life of, con- of regeneration? What about you, beloved, as you sit in the pew before me hearing these words? If you have no fruit of regeneration, God says that your profession is detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. And so the table of the Lord is not for you. Don't drink more damnation on your head, more judgment upon your head. Talk with one of us afterward about what it means to be saved and come all the way to Christ. But if you have come to the Lord's table today in repentant faith, He doesn't cast you out. If you sit here without Him, He won't cast you out permanently. I think of Isaiah as he says in Isaiah 1.6, wash yourselves. Do something about your condition. Wash yourself. Not in your own righteousness, but in the blood of the Lamb. Remove the evil of your deeds. That's repentance. It's a willingness to turn from all that dishonors. It's called a hatred for sin. Isaiah says, cease to do good. Uh, Excuse me, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And then there in verse 18 of Isaiah 1, he invites you, come now, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. Talk with one of us about what it means to become a Christian after the service. Paul addressed the anti-elders, they have wrong words, wrong motives, wrong actions. They flagrantly profess with lightness rather than with substance of deeds of a transformed life. Might that not be true of us? Would you pray? Father, I am reminded of the old Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, who begged you to stamp eternity on his eyes so that everything that he viewed would be seen through the context of eternal consequence. Might that be said of us? Oh God, might that be our prayer this day, that you would stamp eternity on our eyes, that we would recognize today might be the last day in the flesh that we live, to maximize today for gospel output in those that we would evangelize, for those here under the preaching of the word without Christ, that they would recognize this might be their last day, that they would have eternity stamped on their eyes, that this might be their last opportunity to respond to the gospel. And as we leave this place equipped, better equipped to lead lives of grateful service to you, might we make every day count through your Spirit, both in our evangelism and edifying the body in our useful service to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We ask this in your matchless name. Amen.